0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Lisa Sharon Harper, who is an American activist. She's a a faith activist and a non-violent protester. I think it's more than just a protester. She's an activist for non-violent protest in changing some of the systems that they have in place in America. And she was in Sydney for one night only. And I, in terms of my friend Jared McKenna who's also briefly in this podcast he messaged me and said what are you up to and I said I am having a day off because I've been burning the candle at both ends I've been in Melbourne I've been in LA and before that I was in Sydney for about a week and then before that I was in London before that I was in and so I was uh, telling him that by no means was I going to break the sabbath I thought if I use that term he will understand uh if you don't remember Jared on this podcast, he is also a faith activist um, and a preacher. Uh, but he talked me out of my comfortable bed and uh, I'm very, very glad that he did. I talked with Lisa Sharon Harper about all sorts of things, including uh, r- structural racism, including violence, including all sorts of uh, things about oral tradition and the differences between race and ethnicis- ethnicity, and what you can do as a, uh, a white person or a non-white person to to deal with those categories. What what they are, what those categories are, and what they mean to you, and what they need to mean. What what meanings you can evade. Uh, we had a really lovely conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. I wanted to just say thank you to everybody who has been emailing me at alice r fraser at gmail dot com People who have been tweeting me at alliterative a l i t e r a t i v e If you are a bugle listener who's come over I really also appreciate that You guys have been one of the most positive sort of um things uh, surges of positivity that has happened in my career i've um I've just really enjoyed having that that happen um and having you at my at my gigs is a, a boon having you on the patreon subscribing to the blog uh replying to my posts there even if you're not um, um a donor patreon donor of course i'm incredibly thankful to the patreon donors you let me spend time on this You let me do this job you know let me put effort in and uh, pay for the hosting costs which are increasing um because you are increasing so that's lovely uh what else did i have to say i i finally caught up on some sleep which is nice and you guys are lovely and if you do not want to give money on the patreon uh, a dollar an episode is a nice amount or 5 dollars a month or one dollar a month and if you can't afford a dollar a month we can have a chat and i can see what i can do to help you but um if you don't want to give money on the patreon or support this uh this work financially either by buying merch on the website or tickets to my shows or other things like that you can um if you still want to support me uh then you can tweet my guests or tell a friend or give it uh, five stars on itunes which helps the ratings all of those things are um really lovely things that you can do i will let you guys get on with listening to this show i am really glad you're here i'm really glad you're listening drop me a line um see you next week you're having tea with alice Uh, who are you and what are you drinking
1: my name is Lisa Sharon Harper, and I am drinking Riobos tea because it makes me feel at home because one of my favorite places in the world is Cape Town, South Africa, where I have wonderful friends who are who have been part of the anti-apartheid movement and now part of the democratization movement in South Africa.
0: And is that part of your work?
1: But yeah, my actually my work back in the States. I'm from the U.S. So I live in Washington, D.C., uh, for the last six years, I worked at Sojourners as their um, chief church engagement officer, but now I am actually I'm transitioning into building my own consulting group that the whole goal is actually to help shrink the narrative gap around the world, help people to understand um, the gap between the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we got where we are, and, and as a result, the gap in the vision that we believe will make America great in America or make the world great. That's I was great. about to th- yeah. say that
0: that's one of the things that strikes me as one of the deep, deep problems with America, which is that they have told themselves for so long that they're good at certain things that it's made, the, it's made it possible for those things to get really, really bad.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, we, there's, there's so much mythology about America. And, and a lot of it is actually believed by everybody. Like, So for example, I was just talking with somebody about this today, that in America, there's this deep belief that we were created to be a city on a hill. We are shining light in a beacon. In other words, and that that also plays in it comes out of that manifest destiny, in other words, that God ordained America to be, and no matter what anybody did, it was going to happen. There were paintings that were painted um, way back in a day, you know, when they were moving west of this angel leading the settlers west, and what was fleeing them was the buffalo and the Native Americans, right so but it's those mythologies that that Make us blind to the terror that was created. These buffaloes felt. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the terror that was created in order to in order to make this current reality happen. People had to be enslaved. You know, four I mean, million people were enslaved just by just at the end or at the beginning of the Civil War. Um, let alone all the generations. And people had to, there was genocide of Native Americans and um, the exploitation of Chinese labor and the exploitation now of Mexican labor and others. And so in order to have this quote, sitting on a hill ordained by God, you had to crush the image of God on earth, which is kind of crazy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got at uh, my right-hand shoulder, I've got Jared McKenna, who's a friend of the podcast, and he's going to act as a translator because I am not super familiar with the Christian church. I think the first time I went into a church was when I was seven or eight, and it was a little bit scary because of yeah. all of the iconography, which is uh, brutal, um, mm. and it was a bit of a shock to the system. So mm-hmm. uh, I have a, a vague working knowledge. I've read the Bible but um, I think in terms of the, the current process, you're going to be my translator.
2: <laughs> oh, thanks, Alice. And and maybe it's helpful for your listeners to know in terms of where they might know Lisa from. So with uh, Charlottesville and that making the news both in uh, here in Australia, certainly in the US, but elsewhere as well... Um, alongside cornell west and uh, tracy blackman uh, lisa was one of the the pastors who uh, famously was surrounded by an angry mob weirdly carrying contiki torches to keep away mosquitoes because nothing says white supremacy like <laughs> safety around insects i don't or or polynesian torches anyway um we saw those crazy images and um uh, that might be helpful for grounding in the conversation in terms of, uh, yes, Lisa is an incredible communicator and an amazing preacher um, and, and author, and people might be familiar with her writings in Christian circles. Um, but for, for those of us who that isn't of any interest other than it makes up some of our neighbours and some of the oddness of our neighbours... As one of those odd neighbours, I know why Lisa's life is of interest to so many is um, because of the shape of her life of of radical compassion and uh, a costly commitment to healing grace and uh, healing understanding of justice, which um, is one of the reasons I look up to her so much and I'm glad to introduce you both.
0: Well,
1: I'm all blushing over here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I think to translate that again, that means to the listener, uh, you might have seen her on TV, yeah. uh, which is how most people are aware of most things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what have you been wrestling with, Lisa? What have you been struggling with in your mind?
1: Hmm. Well, actually, I'll go back to that moment in Charlottesville. Um, we were because it, it's been a while now. It's been, what, three months since Charlottesville, um, August to September September to October actually two months so just two months but it feels like a long time Um, we did not know exactly how we were going to um, do the action that we were doing that day in other words we knew that on that day in August there was going to be a rally at quote Emancipation Park Mm -hmm. um, which is ironic in itself and we knew that we, were going, we needed to hold witness. We needed to hold space and, and exercise public witness that there is another way to be in the world. We don't have to be afraid of each other. And there was a very, very strong message given that morning and the night before that the only way to counter uh, white supremacy is love. That you, can't, you cannot fight violent ideology with violence. Nobody wins. Everybody dies. Everybody gets hurt, gets mad, comes back fighting again later. Right?
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of the the movement nowadays of of people in very polar polar opposition. The dehumanization. As somebody with Jewish blood, I'm very wary of any dehumanization because mm-hmm. you always feel like you're on the side of right, uh, and I I uh, mm-hmm. it's it's. It's really frustrating to see people unwilling to talk to other people because they know already what they think. Yeah, they know that they're in, in, impossible to engage with. Or, I, I can't. I can't as a person believe that anybody is impossible to engage with, at least
1: until I've tried and failed. You know. Well, I think honestly, I think that was what that was the thing that was striking me. So, we knew that if we went out on the street that day, that we could literally die. Like we were literally warned if you go on the street you could die because we don't know these people have guns they did not come to protest they came they came for war they see themselves as being in a war in a race war and we also knew we could be arrested but that's kind of typical quite honestly for for protests i've been arrested a couple of times before this would not be new but when it was the death thing, all I could think was, my mom has surgery. I'm supposed to be there to help my mom. How is she going to get through that? Like really, without me. But I I sat down, I prayed, and I heard God say clearly, be present. And for me, that was very clearly, get up, walk out on the street, be present in this moment, along with all the other clergy who are with you, even if that means walking to your cross. And that was like tangibly in my head. I don't know where I'm walking, what I'm walking into. When we walked down the street, we finally reached the park, and we fanned out across the edge of the park. And it turned out that we ended up in one long line, face down, these militia, um, white nationalist militia, who were there to protect the park. Now, think about this. So we're standing there and we're singing. (laughs) Sorry. The image is so funny because it is surreal because this whole thing is surreal. Nobody gets up usually on a on a whatever the morning of the week that was and gets up and starts singing this little light of mine in front of a guy with an (laughs) AK-47. You know what I mean? But we did hands raised and actually no arms locked. We did hands, arms locked so they couldn't actually, you know, take us out one by one sang or actually we went down on our knees first and we each prayed out a prayer and then on our knees we sang this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine I'm you know and I mean the spirit of Mahalia Jackson took over me I was just like all over it (laughs) yes this little light of mine but you know you also understand the power of song in the midst of that right so so I'm singing like Like, you know, like fires coming out of my my mouth at this guy with the AK-47. And what comes to my heart and my mind is I love him. I'm going to love him with so much force that he will not be able to shoot anybody. And not just me, it's not just my love, but we are loving him. That was the call that day. So our standing there, our holding space, it wasn't just holding territory. It was holding space for love in the midst of overwhelming fear. That's what they were being ruled by, was overwhelming fear that the world is changing and that they are losing their place. And that is what led me to the thought like about 2 weeks later this um declaration began to be written like a couple of days after charlottesville by a by a, it was a grassroots movement actually and it it ended up being called the theological declaration on white supremacy but at first it was actually called to be honest the charlottesville declaration but that wasn't honest because it didn't come from people who were actually there in order to come from people who are from Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. So it was just it was like in light of Charlottesville, we declare this, but we changed it because that it wasn't it just wasn't accurate. Um, I got invited into the process like two days into it. And it was on a Google Doc. so you guys have Google here, right? So mm-hmm. Google doc. So it was on a Google doc, and so they put up this declaration and they said anybody who had the link could come and actually edit. So at one point, there were 20 people, like those 20 of those anonymous icons across the top, literally going through and editing. You had no idea who was in this document with you and editing. So in a lot of ways, what they did through that process was what I was thinking on that line of what was necessary. They were decolonizing the process of theological thought, of, um, of hierarchy, deconstructing hierarchy because you didn't know who had a PhD or who was famous on that document you might have you might have actually deleted what they just wrote <laughs> because you know or wrote in a thing I'm not sure I agree with that but you don't know who it is who wrote it so there's no favoritism and it ended up being an extremely powerful document nine pages and it never should have worked because I've done lots of these declaration kind of statement things and the, the goal is to make them short so there's not <laughs> that much to disagree on. But instead what we ended up doing was focusing the, the point of the declaration that white supremacy is not just about white supremacy. White supremacy is a tool. It's a tool in order to entrench maintain and protect the colonization of land and people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: power over land and people. And so the theological declaration was actually a call for us to do some deep and hard thinking and listening and re-examining and interrogation of the assumptions that, colonization have taught us to be true of the world and the way that we should be living together and to imagine a new way of being together.
0: I think that's a really interesting way to counteract some of this hatred that's coming up and whether the people who have the hate know why they have the hate or how the rhetoric has been used Mm -hmm. or not. I feel like one of the problems now with the left, one of the problems now with identity politics, or for me, again, I don't know if it's an actual objective problem, but the thing that troubles me about it is, for a while there, I thought the goal was to see people as people, to start stripping away the external signifiers of identity and and to take away the kind of the social pressures because there's some things that you are and there's some things that people put on you. Right. And I thought the project was to take away the things that people put on you and figure out who you are and then just be treated as that
1: mm-hmm. thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And now it seems like the left whose job it was to take away the things that people put on you are now piling things on themselves mm. as, as armour. I don't think it's good <laughs> I don't think it's good it makes me uncomfortable and I could be wrong but it, it makes me deeply uncomfortable and I, maybe that's my you know uh, enlightenment imperialist thinking but
1: <laughs> well I mean I actually think you're really kind of onto something um I, I imagine yeah actually I'm, I'm sure Jared has something to say about that Jared do you want to say something
2: oh um maybe I'll just say knowing something about Lisa's work and some of the the depths like your analysis of race and Mm. um uh i think regardless of any if people have any kind of literacy in faith backgrounds particularly jewish christian or muslim Mm. faith backgrounds that um your work around race and how white supremacy and colonization i think that would be
3: Mm.
2: really interesting but i also want to just kind of acknowledge that um uh, Lisa as a black American woman talking the way she was about like hearing God and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is, is something that for a lot of people is is very foreign mm-hmm. and might sound Interesting. It, it's kind of uh, the thing that you hear from the scary fundamentalists not from the leaders of social change and I think some of the, the gift of the um, tradition that Lisa is coming out of is um, refusing Uh, that narrative and that powerful imagery and that tradition to be colonized in itself, it's a taking back that um, those intuitions and uh, those inhabiting of narratives um, are not merely to be given over to the American religious right, um, but that uh, scripture, both Jewish and Christian, are written by and for oppressed people and interpreting them through... Uh, and from a position of um, real oppression, gives a very different reading to to religion. And so, would you speak a little bit to mm. to that?
1: Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I literally have three thoughts in my head all at one time. So that's good. We can make notes if you want to come back to anything. <laughs> like okay, I put a put a put a pin in that. Um, you put a pin in it. You're, put a pin in that. An that an and bring admin. me back to it. Seriously, okay. Yeah. So so the first thing I want to just say is to is to respond to what you had said a little bit earlier um the question of um what was your question earlier? What was that? You have to cut that part out. <laughs>
0: no, no, there's nothing cut out unless you want me to cut okay. something out. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I was talking about this I, the the thing that troubles me about identity politics, other than the fact that I have always I identified is. as being mm-hmm. on the left and now I feel like I'm being left behind by that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just me getting old yeah. and if
1: I'm wrong. No, I know exactly what it is. <laughs> I'm getting old. so So one thing is... If you keep talking, I'm going to forget it. <laughs> so, so uh, here it is: is that fundamentalism exists both on the left and the right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, when you and I think that what we're what we've really kind of moved into, ironically, is a fundamentalist age. We've run into um, a time where. People are told what they need to believe, and if they don't believe it, they're not pure enough, and if you're not pure enough, then you are the problem, right? So both on the left and the right, that is what happened in our election, in the last, in the last election in the U.S., um, and so people are looking for purity, people, and I think part of it is that, I mean, quite honestly, I think that on the left in particular a lot of the, the, the fundamentalism comes from a, a place of real hope that we really could have a, no, a new way of being together. But there re- we really could make change if everybody just went this direction. So darn it, go this direction, right? But what that does is it doesn't allow for human process. It doesn't allow for people to actually have a brain or a thought or a, a worldview that is not like yours because their their experience isn't like yours, Right. And so, ironically, you end up having the same in some ways intellectual violence happening um, on the left that you have had for for decades on the right so I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Um, I will say though, going back to what Jared said when he first um came on about race and um, and 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 how how race was formed that Identity. There are lots of different layers of our identity. Um, race is one that is given to us. It's not one actually we have any control over. Um, some people like to think, like Rachel Zollogel, maybe think that she like, <laughs> has some control over it, um, but that's a lie. She or you know, and and it's ironic because even because because she is white, she is among the few in the world who might actually be able to get away with that lie. <laughs> That's an exercise of white privilege to even think that you could to find your own race. Um, because race as a construct was something that was created in order to in- secure the control and power over land and people, right? Um, of the conqueror, the colonizer, it goes back to 360 BC. That's what, you know, um, what what we were referring to a little bit ago, that Plato, when he conceived of race, he said, "Hey, there's this thing called race." And what it is is there are different people groups that are made of different metals. Some are made of gold, others are made of silver, others copper. There was a hierarchy. It wasn't about hierarchy at this point, but what it did do is these different metals determined how the people groups served the Republic. So, from its very first conception, race was something that was supposed to determine how people groups would serve society, would serve the republic. Then, with the doctrine of discovery, the papal bull in 1454-55, you get this. This now you begin with hierarchy and it's the hierarchy, the split between civilized and uncivilized. If the civilized go off and explore any territory, said the Pope to this explorer, and find an uncivilized land, a land that does not have, doesn't build with stone, um, doesn't um, doesn't have a written language, um, <laughs> This we had fun with this the other night, dances through space instead of in space. In other words, you know, through space, like think ballet think you know think hoedown think think moving through space as opposed to african dance which stays like solid like on in one spot but moves the body in space if they move their body in space not through space they're uncivilized right that is amazing and (laughs) i didn't know the pope was a dance critic (laughs) (laughs) you would be surprised right so um so so there but you know these are the things we assume when we think of uncivilized right so so when you find that you have the the right now to go and claim that land Mm. as your own or for the crown rather and enslave the people Mm. literally what he said claim the land and enslave the people you have the right And what that is, where Where'd that come from? That came from a a really bad read of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which gives all humanity, everybody, every single last person, whoever was born, walked on the earth and died. I think that's pretty much everybody, right? Um, The call from God and the capacity to exercise stewardship of this world. And they created a hierarchy that said, only the civilized will be able to do that. Well, that's how we get Australia. That's how we got Hong Kong. That's how we got India. That's how we got all of colonized Africa. That's how we got North, South, and Central America. That's how we got the current world that we have right now is that really bad word of those two verses. Papal bull, more like papal bullshit, am I right? Hello, somebody. Oh, hi. Yeah. high, five. high five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: hey, uh. expanding my audience yeah that is um i uh that is re- a really fascinating thing i've always sort of come at it from the um from it as being a misinterpretation of secular scientific stuff mm.
1: uh, it's not a misinterpretation i wouldn't say a misinterpretation of that can i Mm. Yes. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say it's a misinterpretation of scientific stuff because that came next. So 1454, you had you had the papal bull, but then in 1746, you had Carl Linnaeus with his hierarchy, but now according to color, and like literally cor- color. He
2: before we get to color, can we? talk about what people might know of his work that you memorized in 7th. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay, so Carl Linnaeus, that's right, you guys. Carl Linnaeus. I actually remember this from 7th grade because I had such a great 7th grade teacher, Mr. Williams. Botany. Um because Carl Linnaeus was a botanist, he's the guy who discovered kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, species. Yes, I still remember it. Yeah. yeah. That's brilliant. I might have even left one of them out. I'm not sure. I don't think so. <laughs> but anyway, um so he discovered that and he started thinking, well, this works with fauna. It must work with humanity. Let's check it out. Let's try it out. So this is what he he this is what he discovered in his scientific classification. He said, Okay, let's try it. Who's gonna go on top? Who do you think he put on top? What? He <laughs> he put people who look like him on top. He said, White Europeanus. Yeah, that's a real classification, scientific classification, right? So white Europeanus. And then right under that was red Americanus. And then right under that was yellow Asiatus. Somebody, this is really, really like high-level science here, right? Like scientific classification. And then, then black Africanus, and that's the bottom. So that was, at least into my research, that was the one of the first. And he's not the first, but he's like the one that's like, shaped the way that people talk about it now. Very, very much, right? So, And it was only 40 years from that that in America, in 1787, they declared by law that people of African descent who were enslaved were only three-fifths of a human being.
0: Yeah, there was a while there where indigenous Australians were classified as uh, fauna.
1: Yes, I heard that and I was like, oh, now get this. Three years after the Three Fifths Compromise, Black people show up. African Americans show up in the census as actually it's not even. It's like the next. It's actually it's actually 1800. We are listed with the pitchforks and the knives. We are non. We are inanimate
0: objects
1: now on the census in America.
0: Here's a sideline. Um, do you think that being classified as three quarters of a human being would have affected um an impulse towards group action because if you don't count as one person you got to be a group of people <laughs> to have any yeah. power at all
1: yeah collective action i mean that's the abolitionist movement was one that was um devised by as collective action and and also actually the suffrage movement the same mm. because if you don't have a vote right then you then you have to actually you have to disrupt and in order to disrupt you need numbers so um yes collective action. I mean that's that's where the uprisings in the south happened. They happened through collective Nat Turner and others. It wasn't just one guy, you know, with a gun. It was actually it was actually hundreds that banded together hundreds of times in the south. Um there was also um the underground railroad itself was one it was a, was a a subversive resistance movement that was a collective action movement. You had people who were highly, highly coordinated, who, like, they had to know what the signals were to let people know that this house is a safe house. So up in Quaker country, they would put quilts out on the, I mean, on the line. And those quilts had messages in them to the enslaved people who were running north that said, and like, just the, the symbols would actually say, either it would, the symbol would indicate that this house is an Underground Railroad house, you can stay here. Or the symbol would, would, would let people know there are catchers in the area, beware. Or would let them know next door is the safe house. Like, they, they had a whole um, system of communicating nonverbally, And so people would sign up and become part of the Underground Railroad and risk their lives to do it.
0: To bring that back to the kind of the present problems with discourse and action,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that that kind of life or death uh, stakes means that you can't have the kind of infighting that we have now, mm-hmm. particularly on the left where... A lot of really well motivated movements and actions become undermined by, as you say, as you said earlier, kind of fundamentalist purity signaling. Mm-hmm. There's no forgiveness. There's no leeway. I, you know, I think maybe yeah. if you're on the underground railway and your life is at risk, you don't really care that much whether the next person along the line believes what you do or has used the wrong word oh, to yeah. refer to. I, I, I talked about my grandmother in my last show, which was called the Resistance, and. Uh, hmm. She was a really good example of someone who said all the wrong things and did all the right things. <laughs>
1: ah, wow. Um, yeah.
0: She, she, and, and we don't have room for that anymore. We don't have room yeah. for people to be proven by their actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's seen almost as hypocrisy if you're, you know, oh, well, he you know, does all these good things, but he said this thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm articulating mm-hmm. it badly. I'm running I on. hear you,
1: though. I know what you're saying. Yeah
0: little sleep, but it 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 bothers me. I think mm-hmm. maybe because we live so much of our lives online, people think of words as action in themselves.
1: that's yeah, yeah, that's true,
0: but then they're, they're not. They're maybe three quarters of an action. Mm-hmm, uh, they mm-hmm. don't quite
1: add up. It's more like one eighth of an action, yeah, <laughs> to speak the word and to not to not actually act. I mean, I think that gets back to the fundamentalism question, and I mean, I wonder, I just wonder how much of um how much of our our work today is on helping people to delineate between a this is actually it's actually a theological term um so but it's a very easy concept having a bounded set of a bounded set of of principles or um thinking in terms of boundaries or thinking in terms of a center that's really what i mean mm-hmm. so Fundamentalism, by definition, sets up boundaries. It sets up an in-group and an out-group. And if people are on the outside of the boundary, they are no longer in the in-group. They're out. And and so the goal then is to clearly delineate the boundaries of the group. Um, if you are not like this, you are not with us. You know. But a centered group actually only has a core. That it doesn't matter actually where, how far you are in relationship to that core. You could be right, like nose right up to the core, or you could be literally like six miles from the core. But as long as everybody is facing the core, you're in. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? We're all, we're all working towards the same thing. Mm. And that, that's not fundamentalism. And I think that's more healthy. And it also, it, it offers an opportunity for a bigger tent, Certainly, I think one of the problems with that—that's
0: uh, a really good um, analogy because it's it's useful because where fundamental veers in where fundamentalism veers into fascism, which you're starting to see a little bit on the left, is where not only do you have boundaries, but they're boundaries that change without notice. Mm-hmm. And unless you're really, really in on the ball or in with the in group, you uh, you don't notice a change, and all of a sudden you've crossed a line that you wow. didn't know was there. Yeah. And that's the that's the most dangerous thing. And you see it, you know, everywhere. You see it, it in small ways, in, in corporations, you know, mm-hmm. career-limiting moves, things that you might not know. The rules have changed, opinions have changed, and unless you are fully invested in that organisation, mm-hmm. you'll miss it, mm-hmm. and then you are mm-hmm. persona non grata. Mm-hmm. And that inculcates a fear and attentiveness, mm-hmm. which is, I think... Um, can feel like a positive thing but very rarely is Mm -hmm. it's
2: almost like the the shadow side of i I don't think this is where Foucault and Derrida thought postmodernism was headed like i I don't think this is what they uh ways to pull down the meta-narrative critique the meta-narrative be able to name the power um at, at work that we're blind to um and and yet what that's actually created is while those initial conversations in postmodernism were about our epistemology and actually being able to name how we know what we know. And fundamentalism, of course, um, I find it fascinating that at the same time you have um, uh, first time in uh, Catholic dogma the Pope can speak um, in such ways that are infallible, happen at the same time that fundamentalism emerges out of evangelicalism Mm -hmm. and it's the infallibility of the written word Mm -hmm. so instead of this um, sacred text being found in communities in a tradition of interpretation which is a layered approach to how we know what we know how do we know what we know well we're in conversation with not just those who are living but those who have gone behind Mm -hmm. Uh, we're in conversation with a community in which we gather and we're in conversation with a, a, a narrative and a text that that names us um, and in terms of faith communities, also to the Spirit of God that is moving in our midst. Well, fundamentalism went, no, it's based on the book. The Catholic Church went, no, no, it's actually found. And the conversation that you're having in terms of what's happening on the left is um, how do we know what we know and who sets those limits? And the the purity games of more hardcore than thou and setting up cultural boundaries Boundaries, which are cultish. What you're describing is, is is cultish power plays of who's in, who's out, and it's controlling and it's games of um, uh, I need to be right instead of how do we make the world right.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things I find most pleasing about uh, Jewish religious texts is yeah. that you have like you know you have the the core text and then you'll have layers and layers of argument and discussion and disputation that yes. are also in the book.
1: I, mm-hmm. I find that both aesthetically and morally pleasing. And, and I actually, one of the things I really appreciate most about Jewish texts is that it's always placed in the context of story. So everything is grounded in a place, among a people, in a context. So it's not, I mean, even the Ten Commandments is a part of a story. Oh, that's right. right. So you can't understand the Ten Commandments without first understanding Egypt and what it took to get out of Egypt. right? You, you can't understand the Levitical law without understanding the fact that they went for 500 years without without actually knowing who they were, and that this is a reestablishment of the people. So um, story, the power of story in the Jewish text, in the Hebrew text, I think, in a lot of ways, I think that story story is the only thing that can save us right now. So it's kind of fun that you brought that up.
0: Yeah, I, I... I make my living out of stories, so I'm not going to argue with you about the power of stories. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it is at the moment there's competing stories and it will be interesting Mm -hmm. to see which narrative um, plays out the most. You were saying earlier that you were struggling with the distance between narrative and reality. Uh, Do you want to unpack that a little bit?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think that the reason why we got the vote that we got in the United States is because there are two very competing visions of what got us to where we are. So one of the things that you have to understand in America is that in our education system, I mean, probably up till like the last maybe decade or so, most people had never heard of the, Cher- the Cherokee Trail of Tears, um... People literally just recently actually um, said in in a textbook that is written and published out of Texas um, that that people who were enslaved were simply um, low-skilled workers, low-skilled laborers, or low-pay workers, or no-pay workers. So there there's a reframing of that history that is, I think, intentionally being done in order to in order to sanitize history, right? So that people who are in contexts that don't have a whole lot of people of color, which is most of the middle of the country, whether it's north, south, or middle, it's all like middle of the country, they grow up thinking that slavery wasn't all that bad, and they don't know about the Native American removals. They, they think that that, well, God... Manifest destiny is still taught as something that happened. <laughs> I'm kidding. These, This is the, these, so, and, you know, bring that together with the reality that within, within the church in America, particularly the white church in America, particularly the conservative white church in America, it's very likely that people have grown up their entire lives with nobody of color in their life at all. Um, in fact, there was a, a study done recently. Seventy-five percent of all Amer of all white Americans don't have one person of color in their entire life. None, nada.
0: Seventy. seventy-five percent. Huge. I mean, my only huge time in America was in. Uh, I've been in New York and Los Angeles and New Orleans, so that seems impossible to me. Right, right. Those are all
1: coasts, right? So, but then go to the middle, right? Go anywhere in the middle or throughout some of the South and some of the West. You know, Colorado has lots of places like that, or um, you're going to basically, they have no, not at work, not at church, and not at home. And so when you, and then you get the Christian school phenomenon where people are literally taking their kids. This is part of the reason they've taken their kids out of public schools, put them into private schools in order to... Well, it started because of race, started because of the desegregation of schools back in the sixties. They literally started these things called race schools in the South. In the North, they sanitized that language and called them Christian schools. And then when Christian schools got to be, I'm not even sure exactly why they moved away from this, but now it's homeschooling. So Christian schools aren't even enough. We're gonna homeschool our kids. So you know, you go from homeschooling to a Christian college that has about ninety literally about 90 to 95% people on the campus are white. You know, you basically could go 20 years of your life without having one black or latino or asian or native american or or east indian friend. And not just friend but person you know. So if your whole narrative is being shaped in a vacuum in a bubble that where you're only getting one narrative from all sides for twenty the, the for the most formative years of your life, when you come into that voting booth, and and Trump says, we have to make America great again, and then they start talking about how they are taking over, they are taking our jobs. Well, you're going to be vulnerable to believe that because you don't have anybody in your life to counter that narrative.
0: Yeah, in terms of like persuasive rhetoric, the in in the 80s the coming out movement for gay people was huge because it meant that people suddenly realized that they had somebody that they knew right or that they were related to mm-hmm. and that was an incredibly powerful shift in the culture yeah. just as a, as a technique for making change, but you can't exactly pop up in someone's house and say, by the way, I'm your auntie and I'm black. <laughs> yeah. like, you can't that's, do that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right.
1: I mean, I think, with yeah.
2: With the exception being in Australia, some of the complexities of Aboriginality where that is true,
1: ah, um, where, yeah. um,
2: some people are very fair skinned and your, your mm. parents, um, uh, might be very dark, but that might not be true for you. So, Mm -hmm. um, like in my neighborhood, Aboriginal people, Noongar people refer to it as passing. You can pass. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know that's certainly not true of the African experience in other places. It's less true.
1: Although, I have to say, my great-grandmother passed for white in Washington, D.C., when -hmm. she moved north during the Great Migration to escape Jim Crow and the terror in the south and a lot of black folks actually that's the interesting thing about being african american i mean my sister is lighter than you wow. <laughs> literally like literally right so and that's because we we've got all kind of blood mixed up in us because that's that's the legacy of slavery and um, and sexual brutality in the midst of that right sexual violence so but what i was going to say is that that there there's something to do with um there's something to do with, you know what, forget what I was going to say. What were you going to say? No, no, no. It was, it was, I think I'm losing it because <laughs> I need more sleep. Yeah. Anyway. Uh,
0: I think we I think we all uh, feel that way
1: yeah. <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> There's
0: a problem with uh, traveling around the world,
3: yeah, uh, yeah.
0: telling thing, p- things to people. In my <laughs> case, jokes. In your case, uh, brutal truths. Yeah. Uh, Mine are also Brutal Truths, but they're in disguise Mm -hmm. as jokes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I know. That's the best kind of comedy, actually. (laughs) It is. but
2: As as someone who's had a little bit more sleep, (laughs) this is your podcast. Am I hijacking your podcast if I ask Lisa a a question? Um, What you just touched on is incredibly complex because what you just touched on, and I know we've talked about this, but it undoes some of the – ways of framing yourself merely as a victim, which uh, I know you're really passionate about. And um, we were talking about a friend, Carlos Rodriguez, who's Puerto Rican, uh, which means that some of his family history are indigenous, uh, some of the African slaves. And um, he he recently had this powerful um, podcast where he told his full name. And I think he's got eight or nine names Mm -hmm. in his name. And he owned both um, the story of... Of of struggle and survival, mm-hmm. but also the other half of his story, which was um, the people who raped his great grandmother. He's also named for the mm-hmm. slaves which held him. He mm-hmm. also bears their name, and it was it was mm-hmm. such a incredibly mm-hmm. powerful undoing. Wow. Um, and he he shared so powerfully about that. Lisa, would you talk a little bit to like some of how difficult it is to own all of that.
1: Yeah.
0: That's literally the joke I was going to say. <laughs> was that if you're descended from the victim of sexual
1: brutality, you're also descended from the rapist. No, no, that's exactly right. So I had this really profound Sorry. moment.
2: <laughs> that was a joke.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. No this, is, no, this is real. This is real. And it was a, both of them are good. Mm. Good observation, awesome question. And I'm glad you asked it. I mean, I had a, I had a conversation when I was writing my first play. And I was doing the research for the play. And the play was actually exploring my family's history um, on the Cherokee Trail of Tears. According to oral tradition, um, my family walked the Trail of Tears. We are not found on the Dawes' rolls, which by law, um, by policy, in order to be counted as Cherokee back in 1838 or you know, soon after, you had to actually be able to trace your family back to these rolls that they basically like the roll call when they finally made it to the end of the trail, 800 miles in snow, by the way, they marched 16,000 people, 4,000 died, right? So over the course of two years. And, um, and so in, when our family tradition, our oral tradition, yes, we walked the trail, but we can never prove it because they escaped, they escaped in Kentucky, right? So so I'm, I'm researching my first play and it's it's called And push the Wind Down. And it's about, it's the story of an enslaved African-American girl who escapes and runs west by accident instead of running north. And so she ends up getting taken in by a, by a Cherokee family. And her mama has actually written um, her words to her on a roll of cloth napkins and gives her those cloth napkins just before she ends up dying in the woods as they're both running. And so she takes those cloth napkins, but she can't read because she's enslaved and it's against the law to learn how to read. So when she's taken in by the Cherokees, over time she learns how to read and it turns out that the, the last moment of the play is the first moment of the Trail of Tears and the secret to everybody's freedom is on those napkins. Well, there's this moment in in the play where, or in my research, where I'm talking with this woman who is a Cherokee elder in south, in south, south Southern California, and um, she says to me, she's telling me the story of how the missionaries, the Moravians, and and other missionaries used to steal the Cherokee children, and tell their parents they wouldn't give the children back until the parents converted. Yeah. Yeah, there's some effective missionary use of power. work right exactly right right and um, and I'm just devastated and in me is both Cherokee identity and Christian identity evangelical as in like evangelism and Cherokee and and I'm t- I'm talking with her and I feel them both right um, I know I happen to know at this very moment that I'm talking with her that we've been, ta- we've been talking about, um, you know, some church history stuff, and the Moravians have been talked about really well. Like, everybody's like, Yeah, the Moravians did this, and Moravians did that. Meanwhile, I'm talking with her, and she's talking about how the Moravians stole the children of my own ancestors. Hello, somebody, right? Mm. And so, and the, I have, oh, go on. The problem is. That given the rhetoric of the church
0: at the time, they don't even need to have been evil people to have done that.
1: No. See, that's, no, and that's the thing. It was just, here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter if they were evil. What they did was evil. (laughs) It was evil. And what they did was they failed to recognize the full humanity, which means the full capacity and right to exercise agency, of those adults of the parents of those children, right? They were they were exercising dominion over those adult Cherokee women and men, fathers and and mothers, in a way that God did not ordain. But bottom line is I'm sitting there and I'm talking with this woman and I just have this moment where I, I say, please forgive us. And I'm Cherokee. So she's actually confused for a moment. She said, but you're Cherokee. And I said, yes, but I'm also Christian. And I need you to just know that I know that that was wrong. And on behalf of the people who made up, who, who built my faith, I ask for your forgiveness. And she... You know, we had this moment. You know, it was like a silent moment. And and she had been really, really kind of distant and, and not trusting. And then there was kind of a melting that happened in that moment with her and me. Um, maybe it was a human moment, you know? Yeah. Uh, so when we go to race, right, and we look in the African-American family, you know, you look in the family album, you actually really do see a lot of different ethnic groups made that make up an African-American person. Um, I mean, my goodness, I actually, I am a total ancestry.com freak, right? Like I, I mean, you know, um, Jared is actually um, laughing because he's seen me pull out my phone several times over the last three days to pull out the app, the ancestry.com app where I have my DNA. Cause I got my DNA done <gasps> right now as an African-American person who's, Ancestors were enslaved. I, My ancestors were told, you can no longer speak your language. You can no longer dance your dances. Excuse me. (laughs) You can no longer play your drum. You can no longer identify with your tribe or your nation. You are now black. That is your identity. You have to now take on a racial identity because that racial identity tells us how you serve the Republic, Mm -hmm. right? And so they became black, which meant I and all of their descendants after them lost connection. So when I got my DNA back and I found out that, lo and behold, 28% of my DNA comes from Congo-Cameroon or Cameroon-Congo region and 18% comes from Mali and 25% comes from Britain. I am a quarter white. Hello, somebody. Mm-hmm. I am white. According to law, like if you if you, if you you flipped the law that they used to have back in the, tw- in the 19th century, the one drop rule, if you're just one drop black, then you're black. I am a quarter white. So does that mean I'm white, right? So well, I mean,
0: it might add up to that extra quarter that would make you
1: into a whole person. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus. Yeah, right. You could try to argue that, although it probably wouldn't work, right? So the thing... I mean, Thomas Jefferson had white, red-headed slaves because they were his sons and daughters on his plantation, you know. Um, but they were still slaves. He didn't claim them as his daughter or son. He enslaved them. So that's just the way that it worked, That's the way that slavery works. So when I got my DNA back and I saw that, um, you know, <sighs> There's a wrestling that happens. There's a, you have to accept the reality of it all. And I saw that I'm also, I have this like less than 1% trace from Melanesia. Who knows how that got there? I have no idea. I found like three or four different theories from the Melanesian people who I met over the last three days. But... Um, we have everything in us. In fact, my mom looks at our, she, she said it really well. She said, Lisa, you look at our DNA and what you really are looking at is a map of the slave trade. Wow. So do I deny the fact that I have white heritage or European heritage in me? No. Do I, do I lead with that as my primary identity? No. No, because it's not, it hasn't shaped my experience.
0: But also, yes, to deny the fact that you have that white heritage would be to be taking the line of your opposition. In what way? What do you mean? The people who would tell you that you're not white are the people you're fighting. Yeah. You could never be white or have anything to do with us. You're nothing like us. You're the other.
1: Right. But see, here's the thing. And here's the here. So this is this is the kicker. I am not white, even with one-quarter of my DNA coming from Britain. Mm-hmm. I'm not even talking about folks who had to like, argue their way to the Supreme Court to be named white. No, the British were the original white people in America, right? I am one-quarter British, mm. but I'm not white. Mm. British is not a race. White is the race. British is the ethnic group, right? Um, Melanesian is, the, is an ethnic group. African-American is an ethnic group. Black is the race. It's not, it's not real. It's, yeah. Nobody's actually white. You're not white. Um, you're not white. You know, little pink, but not white. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, too much sun to know. Too much yeah. sun. <laughs> you know? So that's, I mean, racial categorization is about one thing and one thing only. It's about power. Ethnicity is real. Ethnicity, ethnicity is about people groups who move through time and space and are shaped by their experience, their common experience over time on particular land. And so, um, so I, I, I'm actually a huge proponent of actually renouncing racial categorization altogether and reclaiming what's real: our ethnic, our ethnic identity, family history. Yes, basically. our family history exactly.
2: Lisa, I hear a lot of white people talking like that as well, and saying things like, "Well, I'm I'm colourblind. I don't I don't see race. I don't." But that's not what you're talking about at all. Mm I have a mate, Des Lawson. He's a pastor like me. Des and I walk into local IGA a supermarket together, and security guard will never follow me, and that's because unless anybody asks, they don't know that Mum's side of the family are Russian Jews, Dad's Mm -hmm. side of the family Irish Catholic but I am quote-unquote white, which, while not being a race, the nature of white supremacy as a construct, how it operates, and it's the first law passed in Australia in 1901 under federation as a white Australia policy, literally means that um, Des, as a Noongar man, is followed around by a security guard, because, so what is it, in what ways shouldn't, should we ignore race, and what ways do we need to confess and uh, if it was just us hanging out, repent. Yeah. But or, do the work to actually transform our lives mm-hmm. so it's in, in keeping with something else.
0: That's a great question. I feel like you already answered that question, which is to identify and deal with ethnicity rather than race. But if you have uh, longer,
1: well, I think. Well, thank you. I mean, I think I think that what what I really mean though is, or what, what I think where he's getting at is people who would, who would actually say, "Yeah, see, I'm not white." Um, uh, so there's no problem, right? I'm, I'm. <laughs> they use that as a way to be a good white person by not being white. Now I'm, I'm British. I'm not white, so I'm good, right? So I think that in in both of those cases, whether you are identifying as I am white and therefore, and I, I'm, I'm white because I want to keep the privilege that whiteness gives me, or no, I'm British. I am not white, and so I'm good. The problem is the focus is you. The focus, the focus should not be you. The focus is not, it's not actually about you. In fact, In fact, racism is actually not about you. Racism is about structures and systems that are built and constructed in order to give favor to one group, right? It's actually, even ironically, it's not really to keep other people down. It's actually really to prop up, protect, and maintain the supremacy of a particular race, a particular group, right? So by saying, so let's go back to what I said earlier. So by by, by reclaiming our ethnic, um, our ethnicity, as opposed to our racial identity, I don't know about you guys how the census works here, but this is real, right? So if we did this in the United States, if we, if every white person person deemed white by the state in the United States, or even just, let's say, every Christian, somebody who wanted to actually be good, right? Like be like Jesus and be good, right? If they, if they decided they were not going to check the box white on the census, but instead were going to write in their ethnicities, not just one, because it's never just one in America, right? So it's like five or six or whatever. And they're going to just write them in. Italian-American, Irish-American, German-American, um, Australian-American. I mean, the whole deal, right? The whole deal, right? So, so they're going to write them all in. What would that do? Because the census is used. The census was, remember, the census was one of the first constructs created in order to create whiteness. Yeah, and, until
0: it, the 1950s both Irish and Italian were non-white categories.
1: Wow, that's deep, right? So, well, but now they're not. And let me just tell you, in the entire time the census has been, and I did this research for my last book, The Very Good Gospel, right? So, the in the entire time the census has been around since 1790, there is only one category that has never changed. White. Wow everybody else's category has changed, has expanded, has been chopped down into multiple little categories. You can write in other, but the one category that has not changed is white. And on top of that, they've even added white people. So instead of just saying Latino or Hispanic, they say non-white Hispanic or white Hispanic. So they're going to they're going to take in white people from the Hispanic population. Yeah, they're going to add to the number of white folks by adding white Hispanics to the number, right? So, yes, you say, "Whoa, that's that's a power grab," right? So, what would it do to have all of the people deemed white by the state in the United States to write in their ethnic group and to leave that white box unchecked? It would disaggregate power from that state-based identity of whiteness and they would have to figure out another way to distribute the resources that normally get distributed through that census because that's what the census is meant to do the census is meant the census tells us how to draw our congressional districts wow the census tells us how to draw our our, our school districts how to distribute money it tells us everything it tells us everything <laughs> Um, but if we disaggregated the racial category simply by disaggregating the white category, you literally would, it would, it would it's, a, it's a way to disrupt that system. And it puts a lot of uh, up until now white people
0: into the other
1: Yes. And you know, now I know, I know you're going to get a lot of pushback from this on your show, right? Because what's, what is that going to do? No, most of my listeners are pretty reasonable. Oh, okay. Well, this is the thing. What that does. Let's Hey, every, every white person who does this and knows somebody in America, tell them to do this in America, right? 2020 is the next census. This is real for me. I'm not I'm kidding around with this. This is real. And I think it's doable. But the thing that white people have to be ready for is they have to be ready to give up. The power mm-hmm. to give up the assumption of the group power that whiteness has created. Yeah, and to play
0: fair. I think that's worth doing. I think that'd be a really interesting thing to do. Mm. Um, I'm going to put a reminder in my calendar to start a campaign <laughs> when ah! it gets closer to the next census, because oh. that sounds like a really interesting, uh, interesting. Thing. I'd it like to see everything. If that could be, there was a massive movement, and it was relatively successful in Australia at the last census for people who were uh, atheists but had been brought up in a religious tradition to tick the box for atheism, mm. in order to move our government away from uh, pandering to a presumed population of of Christian people who were being sure. spoken for by certain power groups mm-hmm. in the church. And uh, it was relatively successful, so it can be done. Yeah.
2: Not to mention the Jedi power grab, which was incredible. So, do you remember how many? What was?
0: A lot of people wrote uh, wrote into the census that they were Jedi. Um, So it showed up up as a as a statistic in the number
1: of. uh, um, Oh my gosh! My jaw is like on the ground right now. What? You have Jedi's and, okay, so now I really want to move to Australia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love Star Wars. Okay? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I reckon we should talk closer to the
0: 2020 census and see if we can get something going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been keeping you for too long and both of us need to get sleep. Where can people find you online or in the world?
1: You can find me at any time online um, at com. Um or we are actually starting a new consulting group called freedomroad.us. So starting around mid-November, that, that website will go up, freedomroad.us. You can also find me anytime on Twitter at Lisa S. Harper or Facebook or Instagram.
0: Ah, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look you up on Instagram. Thank you so yeah. much for having tea with me. Thank you.
1: Your tea is good. <laughs>
3: Got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dopters at every frame. Loudy Rifle Doll, Lally Rifle Day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin, turns around for to view her frames, crying, Damn you dopters, cry up your hands. Loudly Rifle Doll, Lally Laldy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, dawpers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Laldy rifle, daw, laldy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Laldy rifle all, I'll right for day.